I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Kennedy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, May 29th, 2023. I'm Lisa Brady. On this day dedicated to America's fallen warriors, a lost victory is also being remembered. Films like this, parades, the 4th of July... Things like that are uh, civic rituals are really, really important because otherwise we will conveniently forget them or choose the parts of history that we want to remember and not realize how fragile what we have really is. We speak with Fox's Pete Hegseth. I'm Chris Foster. For some veterans, life after war can feel impossible. I've actually lost more people to suicide after uh, the war than I have to the war itself. And I'm Marcus Brotherton. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It may not have felt like a victory at the time, one of the bloodiest battles of the Vietnam War. Somebody came up and kicked my bed and said, get up, we got to go. I said, oh, no, not, not another one. You know, I figured another aircraft went down. What was known as the Tet Offensive had begun, an effort by North Vietnamese and communist Viet Cong forces to turn the tide in their favor by launching multiple attacks in South Vietnam, including in major cities, during the Lunar New Year holiday, eventually beaten back by U.S. and South Vietnamese forces. As Americans rang in the New Year back home, Half a million U.S. servicemen were fighting through the jungles and rice paddies in Vietnam. A Fox Nation special, The Lost Victory, Tet 1968, is streaming now, led by Fox & Friends weekend co-host Pete Hegseth, who also hosts the Fox Nation series Modern Warriors. Well, I love the title of the, the film, The Lost Victory, because it's sometimes an asterisk in the history of the, the Vietnam War, but it's, it was a lot more than that. He's also a decorated Army National Guard veteran who served in Guantanamo Bay, Iraq, and Afghanistan. It was a recognition of the vulnerability of U.S. forces at a time when people believed the official line that things were slowly but steadily going in the right direction in the war effort. And there was a lot of political consternation here in the United States. So when on the Lunar New Year, when the Viet Cong knew most of the Arvin and U.S. forces would be most of the local forces were on leave, so not even on the bases they were assigned to. Uh, they sprung the largest offensive of the war to date and captured many of those locations, including, including Way and others where they completely controlled the town. And it was a shock uh, to U.S. forces and mostly to the American public. Mm-hmm. Now, for days and weeks, the fighting went on and Americans and their allies retook positions. But That didn't matter because of the few places where they were able to hold out and then the shock of these, uh, if brief, uh, Viet Cong victories, uh, the effect wasn't what happened in Vietnam. It was what happened in Washington, D.C. and in newsrooms across America. So while tactically our forces were heroic and you'll hear from these Vietnam vets, they're amazing, uh, and they won battlefield successes – The Viet Cong got the outcome they wanted, which is rattling the American psyche and eventually getting to Walter Cronkite, America's newsman, who eventually following it said, hey, this war is going in the wrong direction. And once that gets lodged in the minds of Americans, uh, it changes the whole dynamic of the war. Politics gets involved. Escalating becomes more controversial. Uh, and, and we know how we know how it played out after that. Yeah, I mean, psychologically, it's yes. clear the damage was done. Absolutely, after the Tet Offensive. Do the veterans that you spoke with did they know or realize it at the time? I mean, obviously, in the heat of battle, you're you're just thinking battle, I imagine. But did they have a sense that it was 
a pivotal moment? I don't think I don't think they did at that moment. Just like there were very few moments in the Iraq War when I felt like, wow, this is a pivotal moment, or it felt like a pivotal moment, like the Purple Finger election moments, which we thought, okay, we're turning a corner here. Felt, I think, in the moment, more meaningful than they were in the trajectory of the war, whereas, you know, battlefield victories are actually crushing the enemy or dissembling networks was far more important than than an election, which we had to guard very closely for it just to happen. So when you hear from these Vietnam vets, you're saying suddenly the light, the skies are on fire, you know, lit up and and I'm in a helicopter. I'm the only guy there and we're, we're having to move to a, a location where we can reorganize. So they knew it was tactically militarily different. Mm. But I didn't get the sense that any of them felt like, oh, this would be the moment per se. The Viet Cong were hoping there'd be mass conversions over to their side after this offensive, which did not happen. Mm -hmm. And it showed the strength and resilience of American forces and the Arvin forces. But I think in talking to them, they were – as you are as a soldier, you're, folk, you're lasered in on the mission you have, the guys around you. And how do you stay alive in that – for those first surprise moments? How important is it to – shine a light, not only on history in general, um, so we don't repeat our past mistakes in theory, right? Um, but also to zero in on pivotal moments like this. I mean, we drew a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan from the lessons of Vietnam when we found ourselves in uh, an insurgency, which we had not trained or prepared to fight for. I remember learning in real time, like, what is clear hold build, the whole dynamic of clearing a city and then holding it and then building out local capacity. But it was all a repeat from Vietnam. There, the, ma the counterinsurgency manual was written in Vietnam. And the Pentagon and the collective consciousness of the military basically forgot it. We decided after the Vietnam War, that's not the kind of war we want to fight. And so let's focus on the Russians and conventional warfare. So I think that's an attribute of just human nature. Like we, we forget which is why films like this, parades, the 4th of July, things like that are uh, civic rituals are really, really important because otherwise we will conveniently forget them or choose the parts of history that we want to remember and not realize how fragile what we have really is. So this is a, a modest contribution in the, in the grand scheme of things. But it, you know, if a few people watch it and say, okay, yeah, those things happen and they're meaningful and we live in a world where things can change in an instant – I just think that history is the best guidebook. It is. We don't know. All we know is the human heart is flawed and prone to mistakes and memory loss. And I, I, the Vietnam generation, too, is one that was so ill-treated when they came home that anytime you can honor them and recognize what they accomplished, I mean, they didn't lose a single battle on the battlefield in Vietnam. It was, a, it was ultimately a political loss. Now, whether we should have stayed and stayed is a whole other question. Uh, but it wasn't the warriors who were at fault. And so showcasing their courage, uh, I think, is valuable in and of itself. I wondered, because with the title, The Lost Victory, you know, I wonder, I mean, does it does it feel to these men who you spoke with, um, does it feel to these warriors like a lost or forgotten victory? Or did it not really feel? Because, again, the Viet Cong forces were beaten back. Mm -hmm. As you say, they didn't lose on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a um, forgotten, certainly not by them, totally mischaracterized from what they saw. I mean, I, I had that in Iraq. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I see what's being reported, but like I see what's happening right here. The things of history have to be taught to us. We have to be willing to absorb them. Uh, otherwise, they will 
they will be forgotten. It's, it's how we operate. It is true that the Vietnam veterans are certainly treated much differently now than they were decades yeah. ago. They've come a long way. But in general, I know you do a lot of, a lot of charity work with, with veterans and others as well. How important is the public perception to veterans like yourself? I mean, do, you know, how much does that matter? Because there's a lot of other things that you have to overcome, traumas and emotions and just the differences of struggling with daily life when you've been on a battlefield. Um, so how much does the public perception matter? I think it matters a lot. Yeah. Um, and I give the credit to Vietnam veterans for the fact that Iraq veterans were treated the way that they were with honor and respect. I don't love the phrase, you know, support the troops, but not the war because the troops fought the war. And so you want to, but I understand that the separation at some level, Vietnam vets said they had a choice. Uh, they they could either stay out of it or they could say, we're never going to allow a generation of warriors to be treated the way we were treated. Iraq was an unpopular war, a very controversial war. It could have gone the same way with the way we were treated or Afghan vets were treated. But it was the Vietnam vets that were at the front of the line. And I, I mean this as someone who was a, led a vets group of Iraq and Afghanistan vets at the very beginning. They were the first ones to stand up and say, we honor you and we support you. And I think it was in some ways cathartic for them too uh, because we – Think about it. They fight this whole war. They get spat upon when they come home. Then we win this big victory in the Gulf War. We throw a national parade for the Gulf warriors as they deserve. And the Vietnam vets are sitting there going, where's my parade? You know, and 9-11 happens. We go fight. Our generation is honored and celebrated. But I've tried hard to try to wrap them into that celebration as much as possible to undo the sin of what was done to them. But I salute Vietnam vets because of what they endured. And you know, again, history does repeat itself, especially because of what we're teaching kids in classrooms these days about what America represents. Is America good or not? I fear for the day when we have to fight another conflict that becomes unpopular and whether or not some of the public turns on those vets again. I, I hope we don't. I pray we don't. Uh, but it, it could happen again and it never should because uh, Vietnam vets are a national treasure. On Memorial Day um, and, and really Veterans Day as well for that matter, do these tend to be difficult holidays? Um, because obviously there's, there's probably a lot of reflection involved. Um, and there, there's rough memories there too. So, I mean, I imagine it brings it all back. There is a lot of reflection. I'd like to think I work really hard. I mean, I wear a bracelet of a guy I knew who was, who was killed and a lot of vets do. I work hard every day when the cameras come on or whatever to – to live worthy of their sacrifice, to, to make sure that I understand what every day I have here is a gift, in part given to me by people who are willing to lay their life down on the line for generations who I never knew, who didn't get that Memorial Day or Fourth of July with their family. So, but it is a little bit, it is even more different that day. But I also, you talk to vets and a lot of them will say, yeah, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say a prayer and I'll, or I'll go to the Memorial Day uh, parade or event in town. But after that, celebrate, you know, with your family the way they would want. They don't want you in the corner mourning all day long. They want you to live the day to the fullest uh, because they fought to give you that day. And that's when I talk to guys and we, I stay in regular touch with a lot of the guys that I serve with. That's, that's how they look at it too. You shoot, a, you shoot a text to a buddy, you know, who might be going through because Memorial Day is not about the living. And Memorial Day is about those that are not there. 
I joined the military in large part because of a Memorial Day parade that existed in my parents' hometown that we would go to every year and the vets would walk down the street and I, I wasn't from a military family and I remember just that civic ritual, that memorializing imprinted on my heart the fact that, hey, I should do something. That seems pretty worthy. I should put my shoulder to the plow. And I think we have to continue to infuse that into the minds of young people that they're a part of a – yes, we're individuals. Yes, we are free. But we are part of a nation that has a collective history of those willing to defend it. Thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Lisa. Pete Hegseth, Fox & Friends Weekend host, um, host of really several streaming shows, if you will, on Fox Nation, but Modern Warriors, and now The Lost Victory, Tet 1968, um, that people can check out. I hope they do check it out. It's not long, but it goes deep with some guys and some images you, you would never have seen before, I'm real candid about what they went through. It's a befitting this, this weekend to take some time and listen to some of these guys. Streaming now? Yep. Thank you, Pete. Thank nice you, Lisa. To you. This is Marcus Brotherton with your Fox News commentary coming up. Memorial Day is for honoring the hundreds of thousands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen killed serving in our armed forces. Around 7,000 died serving in Iraq and Afghanistan since the start of that war in 2001. More than 30,000 veterans have killed themselves since then. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has ordered more access to mental health care for vets and set up a group to look at possible policy and program changes. One death by suicide is one too many. But the rate of suicide among service members and veterans is far too high. And each one creates waves of grief and pain for our community. You know, this is a problem that I take personally, and we've got to do all that we can to prevent these tragic losses. Cole Lyle is a Marine veteran. He served in Afghanistan and helps other vets dealing with post-traumatic stress and other problems. The reason I got into veteran advocacy uh, with Mission Roll Call whose number one priority is suicide prevention, and then all my work with the PAWS Act to expand access to veteran service dogs. All of that is because I've actually lost more people to suicide after uh, the war than I have to the war itself. He's the executive director of Mission Roll Call and founder of Kaya's Canines. And certainly, you know, I have people that I served with that were killed in action, um, not directly, but it's hard because military service is becoming a family business and there are not many civilians who understand military service, let alone uh, losing a friend or a relative uh, to combat or to, you know, an accident that happens while you're on active duty or, or something like that. So it's hard to find people that can relate, which is why the veteran community, you, you hang on to the people that you served with for so long and it becomes a lifelong bond because you, you, you share camaraderie through um, mutual suffering. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of families more than in the past, you're right, it is something of a family business. Um, you've spent time in and around government now. Do you find there's enough understanding and prioritizing of veterans issues or is it just that everybody pays lip service, support the troops, but that's about it? I think it's more of the latter, but uh, veterans organizations like Mission Roll Call, uh, like the ones that people you know hear about, the VFW, the American Legion, are the groups that speak uh, on behalf of veterans across the country and, and force Congress and force the VA and force the White House, not just to pay lip service, but to pass meaningful legislation that could uh, directly benefit 
veterans or stop legislation that could directly harm veterans. Uh, Mission Roll Call has been very public and loud about the need to resolve this issue with the debt ceiling because it could significantly harm veterans across the country living on a fixed income if their disability payments or their GI Bill payments um, are not sent out on time. Veterans reform to the VA and to how our country treats veterans have only ever happened when the veteran community banded together in critical mass and and forced Congress or the VA or the White House to listen to our priorities. So I think it's a little above. Yeah. With Mission Roll Call, you talk about, you call it holistic care, as opposed to here's your sleeping pill, here's your antidepressant, good luck, son. Um, yeah. What, what kind of things do you advocate? Yeah. So uh, first of all, our number one priority is veteran suicide. And there's no one thing we can look at and say, this is why veterans are taking their lives. Uh, it's usually a conglomeration of issues like financial stress, uh, relationship stress, access to health care. It could very well be a service-connected uh, mental health issue, but it's not always a mental health-driven problem. And the VA, unfortunately, looks at suicide prevention through the lens of mental health. They say that they have, you know, a, a VA whole health initiative that they look at things holistically, but structurally, their Office of Suicide Prevention is housed under the Veterans Health Administration in the Office of Mental Health. And their response is, you know, let's uh, give you some talk therapy or some pills, which according to their own decision guide for post-traumatic stress and depression, talk therapy only works about 50% of the time and the pills only work about 38% of the time, but have a slew of negative effects. So, you know, Mission Roll Call uh, would love to see more grant funding uh, to community organizations doing the Lord's work in the community that have touch points that the VA will never have because they only serve 50% of the veterans in the United States. Um, we need to change course. What do you tell veterans who, forget about policy, what do you tell people who when you look them in the eye, you know they're at the end of their rope. They say that they're at the end of their rope. What, do you, yeah. what words do you use? Well, look, you know, I've unfortunately been in that situation personally myself where I've been at the end of my rope and I thought there was no way out and I was about to trigger pull away from becoming a statistic. And the reality is for somebody to get to that point, they are lacking completely in purpose uh, and meaning and they feel like they have no one that loves them unconditionally or will listen to them. So my first go-to is to listen to all their problems and not be judgy and not offer solutions because oftentimes they're not looking for solutions, but just, you know, tell them that you love them and that you care about them and that the world needs them to stick around. And more importantly, their future self and all the possibilities that life can bring, they owe it to that future version of themselves to stick around. And I will sit here and talk to you for five hours, six hours, 24 hours until we get you out of this slump, because I'd rather do that than have to make a call to your mother, father, or other loved one. Yeah. You found a lot of meeting, and your best friend who you lost this year. Uh, tell listeners about Kaya and how she came into your life and what she did for you. Yeah, so Kaya was a German Shepherd service dog who I got in 2014 after I had a close attempt uh, on my own life. And a Marine, thankfully, intervened that night but I knew I had to find a way to mitigate symptoms um, of post-traumatic stress and, and kind of the suicidal ideation that I had. I had utilized talk therapy and pills, um, neither of which worked, and in fact, the pills exacerbated the symptoms. So I had a friend of mine who had a service dog, and I asked him how he got 
his dog. And I went that option. I spent over $10,000 of my own money to get Kaya and train her. And the VA didn't provide any funding for that. And nonprofits uh, had wait times over a year. So she worked enormously well for me for a number of different reasons. She was a service dog, not an emotional support dog or not a therapy dog. She was trained to do specific tasks like wake me up from nightmares or do what's called animal-assisted intervention to stop anxiety attacks. But more so than that, she provided a sense of purpose that, that pills and therapy just never did, right? She required care. She required me to get up out of bed every day and feed her and walk her. And if I had ever gotten to that point again, you know, I look at the dog and I say, the dog would miss me. I can't leave, I can't leave Kaya. Yeah. So they're tremendously valuable for that reason. And I thought it was ludicrous that the VA didn't embrace this option. So Kaya and I lobbied for years on what became known as the, the PAWS Act, the Puppies Assisting Wounded Service Members Act, and um, to expand veteran access to service dogs for post-traumatic stress, depression, and other mental health issues. And that passed in 2021, uh, actually during the chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal. So that was a little bit of a diamond in the rough there. But then unfortunately, you know, Kaya passed away earlier this year. And, uh, you know, as many organizations provide these service dogs to, to veterans, there is no national organization that provides funding for veterinary care for service dogs. So I set up an organization called Kaya's Canines to help offset this problem. Tell the story. Did you, Kaya became somewhat famous, uh, especially on Capitol Hill and in Texas, where you're from, um, because yeah. of your because of the, the pause work. Uh, tell the story of her last airplane ride and, and the reaction at the airport. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I found out that she had cancer and uh, it, it really did wreck me. And, um, you know, they offered to do uh, radiation therapy and chemotherapy and things like that, prolong her life for a little bit of time, but she would have, her quality of life would have been terrible. So I had to make the excruciating decision that a lot of uh, dog owners and, and pet owners make at a certain time. And I said, you know, as much pain and suffering as she stopped, I don't want her to continue to be in pain. So I uh, took her on a uh, flight down to Texas because she was born in Texas. That's where I met her. And that's where, you know, I wanted her to spend her final days. And um, I mentioned it to a friend of mine who works for Southwest. And when I got to the airport, the Southwest crew at DCA met me out by the curb because Kaya couldn't walk. And so they met me out by the curb and walked us through TSA to make sure TSA didn't give us too much grief for her being on a metal cart. Um, and then, you know, we got on the airplane, the, the pilots came over before uh, we took off and said, if there's anything you need, let us know. But then the video that kind of went viral, which I didn't expect it to do, um, they made an announcement over the loudspeaker that this was Kaya's last flight and, you know, didn't know they were going to make the announcement, but they gave me a heads up a few minutes before. And so I wanted to, record it and it's what went viral um when we got to dallas they had made an announcement over the loudspeaker at, at dallas love field and the entire terminal i mean i had to be thousands of people when we got off the plane were clapping and cheering for kaya and coming over to say hi and pet her and um it was really overwhelming in a good way um but then the next two days you know i had 
an event at a at a local pub up in Dallas so that friends and family of mine who knew her when we lived there could come say goodbye to her um, and then drove her down to College Station where we spent a significant amount of time at Texas A&M, gave her her last meal. And then Saturday, when it actually happened, it was the uh, assistant dean of the veterinary medicine school who was there that actually took care of Kaya in her final moments. So it was really a lot of support. And, and meanwhile, all this time, I didn't know that this was going viral. That video of Kaya's last flight, uh, the last I checked, which admittedly was a few weeks ago, has been viewed over 100 million times online at this point. Well, I'm, I hope that outpouring um, tempers the loss a little bit. I'm sure you still miss her every day, but you know you did the right you, know you did the right thing by her. Yeah, I mean, it uh, yeah, it really does suck. Uh, just because you know, there's not many places she went almost everywhere with me for years, and there's not many places that don't have some memory of Kaya attached to them. Um, the outpouring of love and support is really what kind of buoyed me in her last days. Um, and I'm trying to channel all that sadness and energy into hope to honor her memory and um, use this energy in a kind of cathartic way to help other veterans. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Cole, it was good to talk to you. I know that, you know, part of your mission is to is to talk to people like me and, and tell these stories over and over again. And and, and bring this stuff up, so I appreciate it. Um, Cole Lyle, Executive Director of Mission Roll Call and the founder of Kaya's Canines. Cole, thanks for your service, thanks for everything. All right, thank you, sir. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday is Memorial Day, a time to honor members of the armed services who have given their lives in service to the country. It's also the unofficial start of summer, and a record number of people are expected to travel on the roads, rails, and in the air over the extended weekend. Tuesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who last week announced a bid for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, begins a four-day, 12-city campaign run. He's kicking off the event in Iowa and will also hit New Hampshire and South Carolina. Thursday, President Biden is scheduled to travel to Colorado to address the Air Force Academy's 65th graduation ceremony. It's also the day the Treasury Department says lawmakers must raise the debt ceiling to avert a potential default on the national debt. Friday, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation holds its 34th anniversary commemoration of China's Tiananmen Square massacre with a candlelight vigil in Washington. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Marcus Brotherton. What's on your mind? This Memorial Day, I want my children to know that every move we make is a costly move. A hot dog barbecued in the backyard is a lavish expense. The price of watching a parade is exorbitant. On the last Monday of May, we honor the men and women who pay for our freedom. The cost of their sacrifices is foundational to every move we make. How difficult it is to grasp that freedom is not free, and more so to live in light of that reality. Most of us experience war only from the news, books, or movies. 
It's hard to grasp what those who fight for our freedom actually go through. But let's narrow the focus. Perhaps then the cost becomes easier to appreciate. What has one person paid so we can live in freedom today? More than a decade ago, I was honored to interview Sergeant Shifty Powers, then write his memoir, Shifty's War. He was one of the original Band of Brothers, elite paratroopers who fought in World War II. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, Shifty was a soft-spoken 18-year-old from Virginia. He enlisted, trained for two years with the 101st, then parachuted into Normandy on D-Day. He fought in Operation Market Garden and in the winter hell of Bastogne. All told, Shifty spent three years of his youth fighting for the world's freedom. One of Shifty's good friends was named Bill Keane. One morning while holding the line at Hagenau, Bill came off duty. Exhausted, Bill went to take a nap in the basement of an empty house. A stray artillery shell struck the building and exploded. By the time they dug Bill out, he was dead. Bill Keene is a specific example of someone we remember on Memorial Day, and not the only friend of Shifty's killed in action. The names ring out like a laundry list of lost potential. Skip Muck, Bill Dukeman, Thomas Meehan. All told, 39 young men from Shifty's company died in the war. Shifty was stationed in Austria near war's end. His name was picked out of a hat to go home early. He had never been wounded during the fighting, but on the way back to headquarters, the truck he rode in collided head-on with another vehicle. Shifty broke his arm and his pelvis. He came home from war in casts. He spent the next 12 months in a hospital. Even with victory, the young man who had gone to war was not the same man who came home. Shifty was plagued by nightmares. For a while, he drank too much. He was an ordinary man, but he had seen horrific, extraordinary things. For decades, he quietly processed the battles fought. Work, family, faith, and community helped. The total time Shifty spent processing the war, the rest of his life. When I examine Shifty Power's story, I see a man who paid greatly for freedom. He fought for his country when it came under attack, and he also fought for the futures of all free peoples. Decades beyond World War II, surely I am one who benefited. That I can vote in presidential elections and not bend my knee to Hirohita's grandson is testament to the enduring work of the veterans of World War II. That I can write books for a living instead of sweating in a third-right factory is a product of Allied triumph. Still, others paid more than Shifty, as he would be the first to tell you. Those who pay the ultimate price are those we specifically remember on Memorial Day. What is my hope for this holiday? I hold one picture in mind. It's an image of Shifty as an old man returned to Europe to place flowers on the grave of his good friend, Skip Muck, who was killed at Bastogne. The grief and honor are still fresh on Shifty's face. This example is what I gleaned from a man like Shifty Powers and hope to remember, he understood price. I'm Marcus Brotherton, author of Shifty's War and most recently, The Long March Home. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.